Good morning. Such a such a poignant time in uh, the life of Christ and in uh, his time with the disciples in the uh, upper room, the upper room discourse. Such a powerful, powerful prayer. I'm going to be walking through the tail end of. Uh, what's often called, what's often referred to as Jesus' high priestly prayer. Uh, we've been in his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17 for the last two weeks, and we're going to wrap it up uh, today with John 17, 20 through 26. So I want to, uh, just for context, I want to bring us up to speed just a little bit. Um, Jesus' prayer, as recorded in John 17, it's part of a bigger picture that's often called uh, Jesus's upper room discourse, his upper room teaching, if you will. Uh, and, I, and I think we do justice to the text if we see these uh, these words, this upper room discourse, as the words of a dying man, as the words of a man who knows his time is short, and he's he's bringing to his disciples' ears. The most important of the most important of what the last three, three and a half years have, have really been about. I want to, what I'm about to say is, is really, really important for us as disciples 2000 years down the road from the life of Christ. The provisions, the warnings, the instructions, of Jesus' upper room discourse, and here it is, presuppose, they assume, the continuation of Jesus' mission, the continuation of Jesus' ministry, the continuation of Jesus' work through the men to whom he was speaking to and who he was praying for. That's a mouthful. I'm going to say it again. It's that important. The provisions, the warnings, the instructions, the teachings of Jesus' upper room discourse presuppose they assume the continuation of Jesus' mission and of his ministry through these disciples. And now we're talking about 11. Judas is gone. Judas has left the scene. So let that sink in. You and I... As believers in Jesus, you and I, as children of God, are, are products, if I could put it that way, of the genius of Jesus' discipling strategy. We are the product, 2,000 years later, uh, uh, along with, no doubt, billions of others, of the witness of 11 men. Now, certainly more than 11. You have Mary, Martha, Lazarus. You have the 120. But in essence, of the witness of 11 men. So Jesus has spent the last three, three and a half years with incredible intentionality as he poured into his disciples, knowing that, in short order, he's going back to the Father. And his mission, his ministry, in, empowered by the Holy Spirit, no doubt, is now to be carried out by his disciples, which includes you and I. 
you're going you're gonna to see today that this is almost a, a commissioning of sorts, a dedicating of sorts, and by extension, a commissioning to us as well to carry on the ministry, to carry on the mission of Jesus. So Jesus' prayer in John, is that cool? We good with that? Let that sink in. That's good stuff. All right. Jesus' prayer in John 17 is intended to summarize in his own words, his relationship with the Father as well as the kind of relationship he desired with the disciples uh, as the disciples, desiring the disciples to engage with him and the Father. Setting up his relationship with the Father as a model for our relationship with him and the Father. So you guys know this. There's a three-part division to this prayer. The last two weeks covered the first two parts. Two weeks ago, Jesus' prayer concerning himself, verses 1 through 5. Last week, Jesus' prayer for the boys, 6 through 19. Today... This is not only Jesus' continuing prayer for the eleven, but by extension, his prayer for all who would believe through their word, through the word of their testimony. Then, now, and everywhere between then and now. So this prayer continues to go forth on, on, on the part of Jesus. He continues to pray for those who will come to saving faith in Him through the work of the eleven. So we need to see the nature of His prayer for the disciples uh, as a sort of prayer of dedication. This is a consecration of sorts. Therefore, with that in place, we need to see this prayer as, as a prelude of sorts to Matthew 28, what we typically refer to as the Great Commission, and then to Acts 1, Jesus' ascension back to the Father. So we need to see this prayer, especially these last few verses, as a dedication, as a prelude to Matthew 28, and as a prelude to Jesus' ascension. Put another way, we need to see those two events the Great Commission and Jesus returning to the Father in Acts 1 as a continuation of this prayer of dedication. Jesus is setting the eleven apart for the work that he has called, is calling them to do. So this is an incredibly important time on the tail end of Jesus and his instructions to his disciples. Now, I want to put something in place before we actually get into the text. Uh, I've titled this sermon, Unity, the Ultimate Apologetic, and I'm going to be saying that word a number of times, apologetic, so let me define it. Uh, Peter talks about uh, that we, as, as children of God, as saints, <clears throat> are to be ready to give a reason, it's an important word, are to be ready to give a reason for the hope that is within us. That word reason in the original language of the New Testament, Koine Greek, is apologia. Apologia, if I were to spell it out, you can plainly see we get our English word apologetics. So an apologetic is a reasoned defense of something. A reasoned defense of something. So I'm going to be using that word and, and the unity of the church if we're to take Jesus' words 
in 20 through 26 at face value. The unity of brothers and sisters in Christ is the ultimate apologetic, the ultimate defense of the validity of the risen Jesus. Let me say that again. The unity of the church, the unity of brothers and sisters in Christ, according to Jesus himself, is the ultimate apologetic, the ultimate defense that Jesus is who he claimed to be, that he is in fact risen from the dead. This is an incredibly important passage and an incredibly important truth for us as New Testament Christians to buy into. This is both an encouraging and a sobering word from the Lord. Are we good with that? All right, let's get into the passage. 20 through 26. I'm going to read it in its entirety and then we'll walk through it. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. So that, why Jesus? Why this unity? Why this intimacy? So that the world may, what's the word? Believe. So that the world may believe, Father, that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one. There it is again. Even as we are one, even as you and I, Father, are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. We're going to come back to that word perfectly, incredibly important. Why, Jesus? Why are you after this unity? Why are you after this oneness? So that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. So you're starting to see this apologetic rising to the surface. This defense of who Jesus is. This defense of who Jesus claims to be. And what's the apologetic? The oneness the community, the common unity of brothers and sisters in Christ. Why? So that the world may believe and know. So that the world may become persuaded. So that the world may become convinced of the reality of Jesus Christ. Verse 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. And here is John going all the way back to chapter 1. All the way back to the pre-incarnate, the pre-in-the-flesh Christ. So John, all the way back to chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Right? Then John 1.14, and the Word became incarnate, or the Word put on flesh. So there's this incredible consistency in John's gospel. Verse 25, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. 
I don't think I'm going out on a limb today by suggesting this. There is a sense here that this text, our text for today, may be seen as the blueprint for God's redemption of humanity in this inter-Advent time that we call the church. This time between Jesus' first coming and this time between the, the, be, between the return of Christ. I think in, in um, nutshell form, here it is. Here's the plan for the redemption of humanity. Twice in this passage, and I pointed it out. Jesus precisely states the objective which was a part of his mission when he walked the earth and that he is now going to continue through his disciples. We see this objective in the latter part of verse 21, so that the world may believe that you sent me, and at the the latter uh, uh, part of verse 23, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. All right, verses 20 and 21. It's as if... I do not ask for these only. So you have to see that. There's a, there's a segue here that Jesus is talking about. Prior to this, first part of the prayer, Jesus and his Father. Then Jesus and his disciples. Now this important segue. I do not ask for these eleven only. It's as if Jesus is using a common refrain similar to those bad infomercials. But wait! There's more. Jesus isn't finished yet. At this point, the burden of Jesus' prayer in John 17 is this all-important concept of unity among brothers and sisters in Christ. Foreseeing the addition. So here's what Jesus knew that, it, that the boys didn't see yet. The boys didn't see, although Jesus had been taking them throughout his various trips um, the Canaanite woman, the feeding of the 4,000, predominantly Gentiles. Jesus has been hinting that the gospel ain't just for the Jews. It's for the entire world. So he knows what's, what's coming down the road. He knows that the Gentiles are going to be included in the gospel. So he's setting the stage for that. He's priming the the pump for that of this idea of unity. Foreseeing the addition of many, many more who would greatly increase the diversity of temperaments, of backgrounds, of races, of ethnicities, of what would become, become, what would be birth, uh, this thing we call the church. Jesus makes a special plea, and you have to see this, that all, all for all time, that all of his disciples would walk in oneness, would walk in unity. He's beating this like a drum. Jesus actually gives a hint to the disciples in John 10, 16, when he said, And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. All right? He's he's already been laying the foundation for why this unity is so essential. Speaking of unity, 
Let me ask you a question. Do you agree with everything you do? Because I sure don't. How about you? No. Follow the logic. If I don't agree with everything I do, and I think I know me pretty well, it's not reasonable that I'm going to agree with everything you do. Fair? Unity is not about uniformity. When I use uniformity in this context, I want you to think Nazi Germany. I want you to think blonde-haired, blue-eyed, racist. Okay? That's uniformity. That is not what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about unity. We can disagree on non-essentials. And we should disagree on non-essentials. We should um, have the freedom to speak the truth in love to one another. Yes? Right? I don't get it right all the time. Ask my wife. Nobody gets it right all the time. We ought to always walk in humility among and before our brothers and sisters. Because we don't always get it right. We ought to always have a teachable spirit. Amen? Are we good with that? Okay? That's what Jesus is talking about. He is talking about agreement on the essentials. Right? When, he, when we're talking essentials here, things like the virgin birth. You take the virgin birth away, and I don't know what you have, but you don't have Christianity. You take uh, Jesus rising from the dead. You take that away. I don't know what you have, but you don't have Christianity. The Trinity. Take the Trinity away. I don't know what you have, but you don't have... you, You get my point? There must be agreement on the essentials. But we can agree to disagree on the non-essentials. Is that fair? Okay, so I'm not talking, Jesus is not talking about blonde-haired, blue-eyed, racist series. He's not talking about uniformity. He's talking about unity. So we need to put that in place. Uh, the purpose of the church is unity. It's great. Apologetic is the maintenance of a convincing, a persuasive testimony before the world. Before the world you walk in, day in and day out. Before the world I walk in, day in and day out, a convincing testimony to the revelation of God in Christ and to His love for His people. There's a lot writing on this. So that the world may believe and know that Jesus Christ is, number one, the authentic voice of what God intends to do in human affairs. Let me say that again. So that the world may be persuaded that Jesus Christ is the authentic, authoritative voice of God and what He wants to do in human affairs. Secondly, that Jesus Christ is the key to world history. Uh, Last I checked, predominantly this story is about Him, yes? The Old Testament, all these illusions, all these types, all these prophecies... Pointing to Jesus Christ. John says in the book of Revelation, the testimony of Jesus, the witness of and about Jesus, is what this story is all about. Third, 
that Jesus Christ is the revelation of, the very image of God. And finally, that Jesus is the only way to God. Jesus is the authentic voice of what God intends to do in human affairs. He is the key to world history. You miss Jesus, and to a, to a significant degree, you're not going to get history. You'll not under, Oh, you can understand bits and pieces, but you'll not weave, be able to weave it together in this glorious meta-narrative, in this glorious story. You can't do it. Jesus Christ is a revelation of, the image of, the invisible God, and finally, Jesus is the only way to God. Those things, those four elements are what is to be demonstrated by the unity of brothers and sisters in Christ. Do you feel the weight of what is at stake here? There's a lot at stake here. This should be sobering to us. The model for this unity, the model for this great apologetic is the relationship between the Father and the Son. Verses 22 and 23. In verse 23, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one. When I read through the passage, I said that's an uh, extremely important word. So I want to spend some time unpacking the word perfectly. The word perfectly is what we get our... English word, it's Latin, but our English word, telos from, T-E-L-O-S, telos. So I want to unpack that word because it's so important we need to understand um, what Jesus, what John is doing here by using this word perfectly. So first of all, telos means to, 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 to bring to an end, to bring to completion, to bring to perfection. To reach the end stage of what you began something for. To reach the end stage of what you actually began something for. So I'm going to go all the way back about 24, 2500 years to a dude by the name of Aristotle. That you, Aristotle? Famous, famous Greek philosopher. So Aristotle talked about this word telos. And he gave the example of an acorn and a mature oak tree. He said, contained within the acorn, now now catch this, contained within the acorn is the mature oak tree. Truth, right? The oak tree is in there. What does it need? It needs time. It needs sunlight. It needs nutrition. So the telos, according to Aristotle, of the acorn is a mature oak tree. That's the end game, the end product for that little acorn. That's what the word telos means. The end for which something began. So the the telos for the acorn is the mature oak tree. So far, so good? Tracking with that? There'll be a quiz before the final song. Okay. So, what does this have to do with unity? What does it have to do? That they may become perfectly 
1. I want to contrast unity in the world with unity in the body of Christ. So, we might say an example, I'm going to use a, uh, two biblical happenings, two biblical events to illustrate this. We might say an example of the acorn stage of the telos from a worldly perspective is Babel. Remember the Tower of Babel? Remember the story in the Old Testament in Genesis where they're building this ziggurat because they want to worship the gods. They want to climb it. They want to worship the gods. They want to, if you read the text, they want to make a name for themselves rather than making a name for God, right? So God, seeing this, knows it's actually not in their best interests. So He confuses their language. If you remember the story, He confuses their language so they can't communicate with one another and continue building this ziggurat. So I suggest that Talos, from a worldly perspective, is Babel. That's the acorn stage. The mature oak stage of this Talos is a hello to 21st century world. Well, the world basically throughout the ages is a disorienting confusion. If I use Babel as the acorn stage, the mature stage of that is a disorienting confusion. Tracking with that? Right? Does that not to a significant... Look at politics in America. We keep talking past... One in a disorienting confusion. Contrast that with the way things are supposed to be among God's people. We might say the acorn stage of the telos for Jesus' disciples, including us. This is so about us. Including us. Is the day of Pentecost. The acorn stage for the church is the day of Pentecost. What happened on the day of Pentecost? Peter gets up to preach. And because it's one of the three feasts that every Jewish male had to come back to, bring his family to and celebrate, you have Jews from pretty much all over the quote-unquote known world, but they don't speak Hebrew and they don't speak Aramaic. But Peter is speaking... And they are hearing him in their own language. You have to see this. You have to make this connection with Babel. Pentecost is the beginning of the undoing of what happened at Babel. Mass confusion at Babel. Unity at Pentecost. You have to see that. Pentecost is the beginning of the undoing of what happened at Babel. So, the beginning of the undoing of Babel. So, the acorn stage, the day of Pentecost, what's a, what's a picture of the mature stage of what started at Pentecost? You have to see this. The book of Revelation. Revelation 7 is the mature oak stage of this. Check it out. Revelation 7, 9 through 10. After this I looked. Incredible scene. 
And behold, we're going to be there. Is this not wild? We are reading about us in the future. We're there. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. And here it is, the mature oak stage of the day of Pentecost from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages doing what? Standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, the righteousness of Christ, with palm branches in their hands, signifying the King, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. That's the telos of the day of Pentecost. Oh, isn't that rich? I could stop right now and I would feel fed. I'm not going to stop right now because I want more. I want some dessert, okay? Oh, all right. The glory the Father had given, verse 22, Jesus, was what? This otherworldly, this worldly task of redeeming humanity back to the Father. By sharing in Jesus' calling, we participate in His glory. We participate in this glorious mission of redeeming humanity back to the Father. Being united with Him and one another. Invited by God to join Jesus in bringing this new creation into being. And the effect of our united testimony, this great apologetic the effect of our united testimony is a witness of the divine mission of Jesus and God's love for sinners. You get this? You buy into this? And you will never lack for meaning or purpose in life. You won't. In the Old Testament, God sanctified or He set apart His dwelling places with the glory of His presence. Let me say that again. In the Old Testament, God sanctified, He set apart His dwelling places where He would choose to dwell with human beings with the glory of His presence. Our text today is merely God continuing that Old Testament model through the church, through you, and through I. So check this out. Exodus 29, verse 1, and then, I, and then verses 43 through 46. This is God. This is Yahweh speaking. Now this is what you shall do to them. He's talking to Moses. Now this is what you shall do to them. He's talking about Aaron and his sons. Now this is what you shall do to them to consecrate them. To consecrate Aaron and his sons. That they may serve me as, important word here, Priests, There I will meet with the people of Israel. And it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate, I will set apart the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate. This is exactly what Jesus is doing in this prayer. 
He is consecrating the eleven and by extension us as a place where God's presence and His glory would dwell. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know. Do you hear that? Do you feel that? And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Peter tags along on this in 1 Peter 2. But you, who Peter? The church. But you are a chosen race. And here it is, what? A royal priesthood. A holy nation. A people for his own possession. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is shades of Exodus 29, but now it's about the entire church. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Why, Peter? So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Remember what Jesus said earlier in John chapter 13. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. But why, Jesus? Here it is. By that love which undergirds our unity, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It is simple. I'm not saying it's easy. But it is simple. Verses 24 through 26. I just want to focus on the word, on the phrase, I desire. Father, I desire. This word means wanting what is best for someone by someone who is ready and willing to act. Jesus is saying, Father, here is my heart for the disciples. And it's not just my heart. I'm going to the cross in part to make this a reality. Father, I desire. This is Jesus, commonly used of Jesus, extending his best offer to the believer. Desiring to birth his very presence within an individual and thereby empowering them. Jesus' desire was and is to perfect, to bring to its finished stage His union with His people, His union with His disciples that we in turn might know the Father. Jesus wants to include us in the inner fellowship of the triune God. He will not leave us alone. He will not abandon us. He desires us to be with Him forever. I want to close with a word of encouragement. Because I think if we examine unity within the context of the church, we might get discouraged, but don't get discouraged. A danger of being confronted with this topic of unity in the church is we might become discouraged 
by the disconnect between the ideal and the real. Between who we are supposed to be as children of God and who we are as children of God. I don't think I'm going on a limb by saying there's distance here, yes? Between who we are supposed to be walking in unity and what that's actually looking at. But don't get discouraged. My wife, Devon, and I love each other imperfectly. My wife and I walk together in unity imperfectly. There is a very real tension at times between who we are supposed to be and who we are as lovers, as friends, and as walking together in, uni- in, in oneness. Question for you. Simply because our, our love is imperfect and therefore our unity is imperfect, does that mean we should just divorce? Does that mean we should not continue to do... No, that is silly. That's absurd, right? What are my wife and I striving towards? We are striving toward that telos, toward that perfection in our love for one another and in our unity between each other. The same is true of the church. Yes, there's a distance between the ideal and the real. So what do we do? We continue to love one another, however imperfectly. Bill, in spite of our imperfections. Listen to this well. Longing for the ideal while criticizing the real and doing nothing about it is evidence of immaturity. On the other hand, Settling for the real without striving for the ideal, I think is a mark of complacency. I suggest to all of us that maturity is living with the inherent tension between the acorn and the mature oak tree. Maturity is living with that tension. We are on our way to becoming a mature oak tree. Simply because we're not there yet is no reason to abandon the project. Guys, God does not have a plan B. He doesn't need a plan B. He never needs a plan B. God has a plan. And you and I are an integral, strategic part of it. Unity is the church's ultimate apologetic to the reality of the risen Jesus. I want to close with a paragraph from pastor and author Ray Stedman. Hear this well. The divine strategy by which the Lord intends to bring the world to an awareness of Jesus Christ is this. It's to create in the midst of the world a family, a family life, a shared life, so that men and women all over the earth 
becoming by new birth members of that life, enter into a family circle which is so unmistakable and so filled with joy and warmth that the worldlings observing it will envy it and, like homeless orphans, picture this, like homeless orphans with their noses pressed up against the window, Mm. will long to join the warmth and the fellowship of the family circle. That's the mature oak. That's why we're here. To create such an atmosphere through the power of the Holy Spirit, the unity of Jesus Christ, such an environment in the church that the world outside will be pressing their noses against the window, longing to experience the warmth and the joy that is ours.